Chapter 6 of Double Challenge by Jim Gelgard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Messenger Dog In the gathering gloom of the beech woods, a silver-throated thrush sang its evening song. Then, starting where it had landed, the thrush repeated the same notes backwards. Ted paused to listen, and Tammy halted beside him. The boy grinned faintly. Because it first seemed to wind itself up and then to unwind, Al had always insisted on in calling this thrush the winder bird. It was, Ted supposed, as good a name as any. Tammy sat down and turned a quizzical head to look at the harness he was wearing and, for excellent reasons, could wear only at night. Ted himself had made the harness from a discarded pack sack. It had a chest strap to keep it from sliding backwards and a belly strap to prevent it from falling off, and on either side was a spacious pocket with a flap that could be fastened. Right now, the pack was laden with 30 pounds of junk that Ted had picked up around the house. Tammy tried to scrape the harness off with his right hind paw. Ted stooped to pet and coax him. Come on, Tammy. Come on, that's a good boy. Tammy sighed and got to his feet. He didn't know why he was thus burdened, and he had no aspirations, whatever, to become a pack dog. But if Ted wanted it, he would try to do it. He followed to the end of the drive and stood expectantly while Ted opened the mailbox. The Metropolitan Daily, in which Ted had placed his ad, and that was always delivered to the Harknesses a day late, lay on top. Beneath were 13 letters. Ted's heart began to pound. He'd watched the mail every day. But except for the paper, the usual hopeful bulletins addressed to occupant and a few miscellaneous items, there had been nothing interesting. Ted had almost despaired of getting anything. But he realized, as he stood with the letters in his hand, that he hadn't allowed hunters enough time to answer his ad. The 13 letters represented more first-class mail than the Harknesses usually receive in three months, and Ted held them as though they burned his fingers. They were important, perhaps the most important letters he had ever or would ever receive, for the future of the Harknesses could depend on what was in them. Ted ran back up the drive. Running with him, Tammy was too busy to pay attention to the obnoxious pack. Ted burst into the house, slammed the door behind him, laid the letters and papers on the table, and knelt to take the pack from Tammy. He thrust it, still laden, into the darkest corner of a dark closet and turned excitedly back to the mail. Sighing with relief, Tammy curled up on his bearskin. Ted looked at the sheaf of papers. Except for two, they were addressed in longhand. He picked one up, made as though to open it, then put it back down. If the news was good, it would be very good. If bad, it would be very bad. His eyes fell on a box on the paper's front page. Gunman, still at large. After a week's intensive manhunt, Albert Al Harkness is still at large in the wild Mahala. Harkness, named by Clarence Delbert as the man who shot him from ambush, escaped from two officers the same night he was apprehended. 
Delbert, still in critical condition, has supplied no additional details. Corporal Paul Halsler, at the state police, has expressed confidence that Harkness will be captured. Ted pushed the paper aside and stared across the table. For three days, the hunt had been pressed with unflagging zeal. Only Pete Toombs and the duly deputized Delberts had gone out for two days after that. And now, Ted understood, even they were staying home. They had discovered for themselves what Ted and Loring Blade had known from the start. If Al chose to hide in the Mahala, he couldn't be found. But the item in the paper cast a shadow of things to come. Al could hide for a while, perhaps for a long while, but without proper equipment or a place to stay, even he couldn't live in the wilderness when winter struck with all its fury. Sooner or later, he would have to come out, and what happened when he came out was so terribly dependent on what was in the letters. Ted slit the first one open and read. Dear Mr. Harkness, I saw your letter in the courier, and we would like to rent your camp for the first two weeks of the deer season. Can you let me know at once if it is available? There will be ten of us. Ted put the letter aside and picked up the next one. That likewise wanted to camp for the first two weeks of deer season. There would be eight in that party, but there was a very welcome, I enclose in advance to hold our reservations, with a $20 check made out to Ted. He folded the note over the check and picked up the third letter. That also wanted the camp for the first two weeks of deer season. Ted turned to Tammy. Doesn't anyone want anything except deer? But the fourth letter, containing a deposit of $10, was from a party of grouse hunters who wanted the camp during the first two weeks of grouse season. And the fifth had been written by a man representing a group of hunters who obviously like to do things the hard way. Scorning anything as easy as deer, grouse, squirrels, or cottontails, they wanted the camp for bear season. There was no deposit enclosed, but if they could be persuaded to send one, the camp would be rented for another week. The next five letters, two of which contained deposits of $20 each, were all from deer hunters who wanted to come the first two weeks of the season, and the one after that was from a confirmed grouse hunter who wished to come the first week. Ted picked up the last letter, one of two that were typewritten, and read, Dear Ted Harkness, for lo, these many years, my silent feet have carried me into the haunts of big game, and my unerring rifle has laid them low. I have moose, elk, grizzlies, caribou, sheep and goats to my credit. Honesty compels me to admit that I also have several head of big game to my discredit, but that happened in the days of my callow youth, when I thought hunting and killing were synonymous. Presently, in my mellow old age, I still love to hunt, but I have become, heaven help me, a head hunter. In short, I want him big, or I don't want him. I do not have a white-tailed buck to which I can point with pride. Living in the Mahala, and I envy you your dwelling place. You must know the whereabouts of such a beastie. The simplicity of your ad was most impressive. And I always did admire people who sign themselves Ted, rather than Theodore. I do not want your camp, but do you want to guide a doddering old man? 
Find me a room, any old room, as long as it's warm and dry, and I'm yours for three weeks. Find me a book that satisfies me, and in addition to your guiding fee, I'll give you a bonus of $25 for every inch in the longest tine on either antler. Ted reread the letter. So friendly, and so obviously written by a hunter who had experience, time, and Ted tried not to think it and couldn't help himself because his need was desperate. Money. The Harkness house was very large, and now that Al was not in it, very empty. There was no reason whatsoever why John L. Wilson, whoever he was, should not stay here. Twelve dollars a day was not too much to ask for board, room, and guide services. As for the twenty-five dollars an inch, there were some big bucks in the Mahala. Tad sat down to write. Dear Mr. Wilson, thanks very much for your letter. He crumpled the sheet of paper and started over. Dear Mr. Wilson, there are some big bucks. Then he crumpled that sheet and did the only thing he could do. Dear Mr. Wilson, I am going to tell you about Damon and Pythias. Ted told, and he was scrupulously honest. His father, born in the Mahala almost fifty years ago, had never seen bigger bucks. Certainly, they were the biggest Ted had ever seen. In their prime now, royal trophies, a couple of years would see them in the decline. Ted gave it as his personal opinion that both were at their best this year. Next season, they would not be quite as good, and the year after, Ted thought, both would bear the misshapen antlers that are so often the marks of old bucks. But just getting a shot at either would involve more than a routine hunt. The two bucks were very wise. Many hunters had tried for them, and nobody had come near to getting either. It might very well take three weeks just to hunt them, and Ted could not guarantee success. However, though they were far and away the biggest, by no means were Damon Pythias the only bucks in the Mahala. He concluded by writing that Mr. Wilson could stay with him, and that his fee for board, room, and guide service would be $12 a day. Ted sealed the letter, addressed it, put two stamps on, marked it airmail, and turned to the others. He shook a bewildered head. The way Carl Thornton ran Crestwood, catering to guests had always seemed the essence of simplicity. Obviously, it had its headaches. Of the dozen applicants for his camp, eight wanted it in deer season, and all wanted it the first two weeks. Ted screened the letters again, then narrowed them down to the three who had sent advances. They'd offered earnest intent on coming, the rest might and might not appear, but which of the three should he accept? Ted solved it by consulting the postmarks on the letters. All had been mailed the same day, but one had been stamped at 10 a.m. and the other two at 2 p.m. Ted wrote to the author of the letter with the earliest time mark, a Mr. Alan Thomas, and told him that the camp was his for the first two weeks of deer season. The other two checks. Uh, if only there had been three camps. He put in envelopes with letters saying that he was very sorry, but the camp had already been reserved for the time they wanted. Then, in a flash of inspiration, 
he opened both letters and added a postscript, saying that the camp was still available for the last week of the season. He grinned ruefully as he did so, and seemed to hear Al saying, Most missed pelt there, Ted. Ted assured the other deer hunters that his camp was reserved for the first two weeks, but opened the third. He contemplated bringing his price down to $45 for that week. Then he reconsidered. Most hunters thought that hunting would be much better the first of the season than it ever could be the last. And, in part, they were right. Unmolested for almost a year, during the first days of the season game was apt to be less wary. As compensation, during the latter part of any season, there were seldom as many hunters afield. Anyhow, deer hunters who really wanted a camp would not let an extra $15 stand in the way of getting one. Writing to the bear hunters, Ted accepted a tentative reservation that would be confirmed as soon as he received a deposit of $10. Too many people made reservations with no deposit. Then, if something arose that prevented their honoring their reservations, they simply didn't come. Anyone who paid money in advance would be there or cancel in plenty of time to get their money back. Ted told the grouse hunters, who'd sent a $10 deposit, that the camp was there for the first two weeks of the season, and he pondered over the other grouse hunters' letter. Nobody at all had applied for woodcock season because, Ted decided, woodcock were so uncertain. One of the finest of game birds, they are also migratory. A few nested in the Mahala, but they were too few to attract sportsmen. Depending on conditions, flight birds might and might not be in the Mahala during the season, and some years they bypassed it completely. But when they came, they offered marvelous shooting. Ted wrote the second grouse hunter, a Mr. George Bailu, that the only vacancy he had left was for the third week of grouse season. But was he interested in woodcock? If he was, and if he would advise Ted to that effect, Ted would be happy to call him long distance in the event of a worthwhile flight. Tammy Rose yawned prodigiously and lay down to sleep on his other side for a while. Ted shuffled the pile of letters, which he needn't put in the mailbox, because he was definitely going into Lorden in the morning, and pondered. It hadn't worked out quite as he'd hoped it would, with the camp rented continuously throughout six weeks of small game hunting and three of deer. He figured with his pen on a discarded piece of paper. The camp was definitely rented for two weeks of grouse and one of bear hunting at $45 a week. That added up to $135. It was certainly rented for two weeks of deer hunting at 60 a week. Thus, he would have $120 more. Ted sighed wistfully. $255 was by no means an insignificant return on their investment, even if they had put a price on their labor, and they could look forward to the next hunting and fishing seasons. If Al were here, they'd be happy about it and eagerly planning more camps. But Al wasn't here, and all that mattered now was that.
By the end of deer season, Ted could be certain of having at least $255 in cash. If John Wilson came, stayed with Ted for 21 days, and paid him $12 a day, that would be $252 more. If Mr. Wilson got a buck that satisfied him, and the buck's antlers had one tine nine inches long. Cut it out, Ted advised himself. Cut it out, Harkness. Count on what you know you'll have, and that's $255. Tammy, hearing Ted's voice and thinking he was called, came over to sit beside his master. He raised a dainty paw to Ted's hand and smiled with his eyes when the boy took it. Ted glanced at the clock. Great guns! Twenty past one. We'd better hit the hay. He shucked off his clothes, put on his pajamas, and crawled into bed. But even though he was tired, sleep would not come, because he was thinking of Al. How was his father spending this chilly night? And where? In some cave, perhaps, or some thicket. Ted tried to put such thoughts from him. Wherever Al might be, that outdoorsman was warm, dry, and even comfortable. But Ted's mind insisted on seeking the gloomy side, and he was brought out of it only when Tammy whined. Instantly, Ted became alert. Taught to whine, but never to bark when a stranger came near the house, Tammy was warning him now. The boy slipped out of bed, and in the darkness, he felt for his shoes and pulled them on. He laced them so there would be no danger of tripping over the shoelaces and soft-footed across the floor to take a five-cell flashlight from its drawer and his 12-gauge shotgun from its rack. Out of the night came a sound that has been familiar since the first ancient man domesticated the first chickens. It was the sleepy squawk of a hen protesting removal from its warm roost. Ted opened the door softly stabbed the darkness with his light, and trapped within its beam a figure that ran from the chicken coop toward the forest. Get him, Tammy! Tammy rippled forward, and the light magnified his bobbing shadow twenty times over. He was not a dog, but a monster, a nightmare from some antediluvian swamp, bearing down on the fleeing man. He rose into the air, struck the runner's back with his full weight, knocked him sprawling, and snarled over him. It was what he'd been trained to do, and it was all he'd do, unless his captive tried too hard to get up. Then a little thing work might be necessary. But this prisoner wasn't even moving. Ted shined his light into the terrified face of a young, ne'er-do-well, known to his parents as Sammy Allen Stacy to himself and a few of his intimates, as S.A., and to too many others, as Silly A. His captor asked sternly, What are you doing here? Uh, nothing. What's in the sack? I, I just borrowed three of your hens, Sammy started to sniffle. I, I was gonna bring them back tomorrow, honest. Guess I'll go back to the house. Ted said meaningfully. When I hear you scream, I'll know Tammy's working on you. No, please, please don't. 
Think you can stay out of other people's chicken coops? Yes, yes. Ted ordered. All right, Tammy. The collie moved back, and Ted addressed the prostrate youth. Get up and get out of here. If you ever come back again, I'll just turn you over to my dog. Sammy rose and ran into the woods. Ted returned the three indigent hens to the roosts and addressed Tammy. I'll bet that, if ever he has found another chicken coop, it won't be Oz. <laughs> he must have scared some sense into him. Back in the house, Tammy sought his bearskin. Ted replaced the flashlight and shotgun, took his shoes off, and went back to bed. Tomorrow, he needed to go to Lorton, but it needn't be bright and early, because by Mahala's standards, Lorton just didn't get up bright and early. Ted slept until a quarter to seven. An hour later, with Tammy on the pickup seat beside him, he started down the road. He drove slowly because the business and professional offices in Lorton wouldn't be open for another hour. Coming opposite Crestwood, he saw Nels Anderson, his former partner, working with the pick and shuffle beside the driveway. Ted eased his truck over and stopped. Hello, Nels. By golly, Ted! Nels' face could never reflect anything he did not feel. It's good to see you! It's good to see you too. How are things? We must not holler, yeah? Guess it never does any good. How's the boss? Nels smiled sadly. Mad. What's he mad at? Me. I go to fix the freezer and he say, Get out of there, you crazy Scandahoovian. From now on you work only outside and just three days a week. For Pete's sake, why? He's mad. Why don't you get a different job, Nels? One you can depend on. Yeah, I like to. I do not like Mr. Thornton no more. Why not? He gets mad. You hear from your pa yet? No. I'm awful sorry, Nels said gravely. I do not believe your pa he shoots this man like they say he did. If I could help him, I would. Thanks, Nels. Be seeing ya. So long, Ted. Ted drove on, wondering. He'd had only two personal contacts with Carl Thornton. The day he was hired, and the day he was fired. He couldn't really say that Thornton was not an unpredictable individual, given to sudden rages, because he didn't know him that well. He had impressed Ted as somewhat cold and carefully calculating. The boy shrugged. Nels was a nice person, but an idea soaked into his head about as easily as sunbeams penetrate mud. Probably he'd broken some rule which he had not understood and still didn't understand, and Thornton was punishing him. But putting him on half time, and Nels with five children to support, seemed like extreme punishment. Ted drove on to Lorton, where, even though most of the town's residents were his friends, he could not help feeling self-conscious. Smokey Delbert's shooting had brought Lorton more fame or notoriety than it had known since its founding, 
The story had been in most of the state's papers and gained wide distribution through a couple of news services. Parking in front of the First National Bank, Ted left Tammy in the truck, dropped his stamp letters in a mailbox, and walked up the dimly lighted stairs that led to the law offices of John McLean. Edith Bruman, McLean's ageless secretary, had not yet come in, but John McLean was rummaging through her desk. He looked up and said, Howdy, boy. Good morning, Mr. McLean. Ted stood awkwardly, a little embarrassed and a little lost. Just how did one approach an attorney, and what did one say to him? John McLean continued to paw through the desk, and Ted studied him covertly. A huge, gaunt man in an ill-fitting suit, with unkept gray hair and a black tie askew on his collar. John McLean looked like anything save the successful attorney he was. His dress and person were part of a clever act, though. Slouching into a courtroom, he was more apt to provoke snickers than admiration. But an opposing attorney who underrated him, and most did, literally fell into his clutches. There was a silver tongue behind John McLean's rather slack lips and a razor-sharp brain beneath his gray hair. He grinned loosely now. It is too darn early. She put something away, I can never find it. What can I do for you? I'm Ted Harkness, Mr. McLean. I know. I want to find out if you'll take care of my father. Judging from what I've read in the papers, your dad's taken pretty good care of himself. Ted said hesitantly, he can't stay in the Mahala forever. Sooner or later, they'll get him. Sooner or later, John McLean said, they get everybody. Wish people would stop making a joke out of that old saw. Crime doesn't pay. It doesn't. He resumed poking through the desk while Ted stood uncomfortably, not knowing whether or not he'd been dismissed. Two minutes later, John McLean whirled on him. Is your dad guilty? No. How do you know? He said he isn't. John McLean chuckled. Simmer down. I don't want to fight you. Just wanted to find out if you had a good reason for thinking your dad is innocent. Is the reason good enough for you? As though forgetting Ted, the attorney opened another drawer and leafed through its contents. He said suddenly, I'll take the case. Ted sighed relievedly. Oh, thank you. Better save that until after the trial. But save your worries too. Then you can help him? We'll figure something out. Who did shoot this Delbert? I wish I knew. So do I. Ted said uneasily. I, I haven't any money right now, but I'll have at, at least $255 and perhaps a great deal more right after deer season. John McLean murmured, It'll help. The price of justice is just off too blasted high. D do you want to talk with Dad soon? Where is he? Laying out in the Mahala. The Mahala's a big place. Ted said honestly, I don't know where he is. I haven't seen him since he left, but... I could get a message to him. 
I won't ask you how. Does your dad mind laying out? No. Then leave him until the time is right. It would have been better if he'd given himself up right away. But staying out now will do more good than harm. People, even prosecuting attorneys, can forget quite a bit in a short time. Is there anything else? When he comes in, or when you bring him in, I want to be the first to talk to him. Can you arrange that? I'm sure I can. That night, back at the Harkness house, Ted took Tammy's harness from the closet and emptied it of junk. He replaced the junk with an equal weight of food, added a handful of matches, thrust a pad of paper and a pencil into one of the pockets, and strapped the harness on Tammy. Ted took his dog to the back door and let him into the darkness. Take it to Al, he ordered. Go to Al, Tammy. Tammy, who hadn't been able to see any sense in the pack, but who saw it now, raised his drooping ears and wagged his tail. He raced away in the darkness. Ted had scarcely closed the back door when there was an imperative knock at the front. He opened it to admit Jack Callahan. End of chapter 6